Uh, Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, if you are using a a pew, chair, rack under the chair in front of you Bible, uh, you'll find it on page 887. Uh, We have, uh, we began, I guess, the second week of August, uh, this series in the Gospel of John. Uh, And uh, so that's where we'll be for the uh, relatively foreseeable future. Um, uh, This morning we'll look at verses 1 through 12. And again, uh, it's our practice to stand when we read God's word. So if you're able, would you uh, please stand and give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it came from, although... The servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work. Use this, your word, to draw us to Christ, to conform us more and more into his image. For we ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I trust that um, I trust I'm not alone uh, in this. I, I, I really hope that, well, at some level, I kind of hope all of you this is true. Um, but we have those passages where um, you're reading through Scripture, you're kind of making your way through the Bible, and you come to these passages and you feel a little bit like the King of Siam and the King and I. Right? Remember the interaction he had with his son? In essence, he said, look, when you're king, you know things. Right? And then he turns and says, is a puzzlement. Right? There's these places where we we come to Scripture and we see what the the Bible says and we might react against it. We may kind of know the words and recognize the words and, and understand exactly what it says and think, I don't like that. And so we think is a puzzlement. 
Or maybe we read the words and go, I have no idea what that means. I have, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with this is a puzzlement. Sometimes, and I think this is where this passage has been for me most of my life. It's not what's said, it's what not, what's not said that makes you scratch your head. Right? There's all these things that you're kind of like, hold on a second, time out. I have questions. Like I have not just one or two. I have lots of questions. And, and I'm going to need these questions answered. And so it's not because when you read the passage, you think, okay, I get that. Like I, it's clear enough where they are and what happened. And yet I find myself going is a puzzlement. There's, there's pieces missing that I wish the Bible would give me so I could have a little bit more clarity. And so I'm left with the words of the king is a puzzlement. I want to examine this passage um, by looking at a series of three relationships. Mary and Jesus, Jesus and the wine, the wine and you. But first, just to set the stage. And again, you're thinking, well, set the stage. It's a wedding. Like it's very clearly says third day wedding. I get that. I know how that works. But see, my questions are things like, wait, hold on a second. Where's Joseph? Why was Mary invited to the wedding? Why was Jesus invited to the wedding? And why does it seem like the disciples are the plus ones? Right? You read the passage. Mary was there, although she's never mentioned by name. Why is that? Jesus was also invited to the wedding. Oh, yeah, along with his disciples. The disciples seem to be the plus ones or the plus five, as the case might be, or six. And so you, you read through the passage and you think, well, wait, hold on. And for that matter, why does Mary know things that shouldn't be commonly known? Mary's invited to the wedding. She's mentioned first. She's probably the connection to the bride or groom, who, by the way, are never named. You see my questions? Like, tell me I'm not the only one. Um, they're never named. And so it appears that Mary is actually the link, the connection to the bride or the groom, probably the groom. Jesus also has an invitation. It's probably a connection, a relative of Mary and Jesus. And you get the sense the disciples were invited. They were included just because they're with Jesus all the time now. Like they don't have an invitation. Jesus was invited with the disciples. It was common enough for a rabbi when invited to an event like this to be able to bring his followers, his disciples with him. And so that seems to be the case. Of course, weddings then are different from weddings now. Y'all, I have literally gotten you have 30 minutes from the moment we walk in to the moment we walk out. You will be done in that 30 minutes. This, these weddings were like we, a week long. I mean, you're talking multi-day festival. And so they're gathered for, for days and days to celebrate this wedding. And it was the groom. The groom was the one responsible for the food, the wine, the feast. 
And, you know, if you're the groom, if you're the parents of the groom, you don't want to be responsible for that. It was common to appoint someone, uh, the master of the feast, it appears, to kind of have the role of, I will serve as feast master for your wedding, some sort of close relative, somebody, you know, it's, it's a, a bit of an honor in that sense um, to serve as kind of the, the wedding coordinator. And this is why I think Mary is actually connected to the groom. Notice in verse 3, Mary comes to Jesus with insider knowledge. They're out of wine. Okay, the groom would not have wanted anyone to know that. That's shame. It's embarrassment. The reality is it's the end of the feast. Right? The wine is out. Might as well go home. Why stay? Why stick around? And so that, that knowledge, that information would have brought shame and embarrassment on the groom and on his family. And yet Mary knows it. Which means she may very well be, have some sort of role of assistant wedding coordinator type uh, in this wedding. She has some place of importance. That's the setting. That's the context. That sort of sets the stage for these three relationships. First, Mary and Jesus. And by the way, the questions don't stop. For me, the puzzlements only just now begin. Mary turns to Jesus in verse 3 and says, look, there's, there's no wine and, and, I mean, do we really think Mary expected Jesus to turn water into wine? I, I don't think so. Did she expect him to do something? Well, it seems like it because she then turns to the, the servants and says, do whatever he says. Or perhaps more importantly, could I look my mom in the face and say, woman, what does this have to do with me? And not get smacked? Like that's, we read that and think, hold on, I dare you, kid. No, I don't. How is it that Jesus can look her in the face and say, woman, what does this have to do with me? And not be in sin. Because we know Jesus never sinned. So this isn't an act of disobedience. This isn't an act of rebellion against his mom. Of course, he's, 30 at this point that that changes the relationship to be sure and look i don't want to impugn mary's motives and i don't want to impugn yours but moms you kind of have a way of asking questions that are really intended to be statements and you kind of have a way of making statements that are really intended to be instructions that sounds like what's going on here. It seems as though Mary looks at Jesus and says, they're out of wine. And the assumption is that Jesus is going to do something about it. She knows he can. She knows he has the power and the authority to do something about it. 
she seems to presume he has the tendency to solve the groom's shame and embarrassment and to do so somewhat secretly. But you notice Jesus' response. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now look, we read woman and go, hold on. No child of mine is ever looking at me and using that word. Okay, it's not as harsh in first century Judaism as it sounds to us. The comparison, especially for those of us in the South, would be ma'am. It's it's still respectful. It's still honoring. But it is also a little bit distancing. Because here's the thing. Jesus uses this word again. When he's hanging on the cross. And he looks down and he sees Mary and John. And he says, woman, behold your son. That's not disrespectful. That's not dis. In fact, that's the exact opposite of disrespectful. So it's not as though woman in this context sounds as off-putting, as offensive as it does to our ears. But Jesus is creating some distance. He is creating a bit of separation between himself and his mom. That's indicated not just in that use of woman, but in what he says next. My hour hasn't come. Whenever John uses the hour, and he uses it dozens of times throughout this gospel. This is a word that will show up over and over again throughout the gospel of John. He's always referring to the death, burial, resurrection, and to some extent, ultimately, the ascension of Christ. And so, what Jesus seems to be saying to his mom is, I have a greater responsibility to my heavenly Father and to the mission for which he has sent me than I do even to you. It's not yet time for my hour. That has not gotten here yet. So he's creating a a little bit of distance. It's as though he's reminding his mother all over again, there is a hierarchy here. And as the second person of the Trinity in the flesh, my responsibility is to my heavenly father and the mission for which he has sent me. Remember, Jesus is going to say it's my food to do the will of my father. So he's resetting that boundary. He's resetting that arrangement. He's come to accomplish our salvation. He's come to carry out this mission of perfect, sinless obedience. And yet to suffer and bleed and die to atone for our guilt for our sin and for our shame. So he's resetting that relationship, his mission, reminding her of his mission to accomplish the deliverance of his people. That's the greater need. 
But he's also reminding her, I'm your savior too. I can't, I don't know what it's like to be the mother of a son. But imagine hearing your son remind you, I'm your deliverer. I'm your savior. Mary needed Jesus just as much as anyone ever else has, right? Anyone else ever has would be the rephrase. And so she's, he's reminding her of that relationship. And yet she knows he has the power. He has the authority. He can do something. In fact, he seems to have the, t- the tendency to do something about the shame that this is going to bring on the groom. And so when Mary turns both to Jesus to say they have no wine and to the servants to say do what he says, she's actually affirming her trust in Jesus. She's actually affirming her hope and confidence in Christ as even her compassionate Redeemer. That's the first relationship, Mary and Jesus. The second relationship between Jesus and the wine. There are, verse uh, 6, I don't know, just inside the front door. It's how it works in my head. I have no idea. Just humor me, right? These six large stone jars that each hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. And that's their purpose. Their purpose is to hold water. Notice for Jewish rites of purification. Okay, to some extent that water is going to rinse the dirt and sand off of your hands so that you can come in and eat the food at the wedding. But that's not its primary function. The the primary function is religious. It's ceremonial. The the point is, we're going to to wash these hands. And so the the servants would would ladle out or pitcher out some water and pour it. And you would wash your hands under that water. It's a a purification sign. We're going to wash the hands as a sign of the reality is that my whole self needs to be purified. We'll take the hands as representative for the rest of the body. And so it was Jewish custom. It was, it was old covenant custom uh, these, that these jars were intended to serve. And then Jesus tells them to go fill them up with water. And so they did. And notice we're told specifically up to the brim. Right? A full pitcher. Some of you put back a full pitcher into the refrigerator. And there's not enough water in that pitcher. Fill it back up before you put it in the fridge. Right? And they filled it all the way to the brim. The puzzlements, right? When exactly does the water become wine? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But that we know they filled them with water. And the verb used for draw out in verse 8 is almost always used for water. 
So either they think they're getting water and out comes wine, or they are scooping out water and it becomes wine before they get to the master of the feast. The point is, of course, obviously, that Jesus has just performed a miracle. Right? Grapes become wine. That will happen naturally. Now, it doesn't happen very quickly. But it does happen. I remember one time in high school, Scott's mom took Scott and David and me, I'll say or spare you the last names, to the beach for the weekend. I left grapes in a cooler in the backseat of my car at the beach in South Carolina in the summer for a weekend. When I got home and opened said cooler, okay, there's still grapes, but they already smelled like wine. Right? That's a, it's a natural process. It happens, right? Yeast and sugars and all that sort of stuff. That's not what happens here. It's not even a fast version of that. Grapes naturally become wine. Water does not. It's not like they had grapes and Jesus said, okay, I'll tell you what, we'll speed up the process. No, he turned something, water, into something it cannot and would not otherwise become on its own. Jesus performs this first public miracle. Incidentally, this is worth a short side conversation. There are segments of Christianity that think miracles should be normal, common, everyday events for us as Christians. You probably ought to start with, what exactly is a miracle? I don't, I don't mean give me examples. I mean, think of a, a, a biblically appropriate definition of a miracle, right? It's God's sovereign, supernatural intervention in the ordinary, natural processes of the world around us. He's working outside of or contrary to or despite the laws of nature. Right? It's natural for grapes to become wine. It doesn't happen in a moment, but it will happen eventually. It is not natural for water to become wine. That is contrary to the, the laws of nature itself. And there are segments of Christianity who think that ought to be, that kind of thing ought to be part and parcel with the Christian life. Two objections, two reasons I don't think that's true. Number one, because then you wouldn't have any such a thing as natural laws. If miracles were that common, you couldn't count on natural laws. And that just logically doesn't make sense. But two, read your Bible. How often do miracles actually happen? The reality is, not much. Moses, around Moses, right? Around Elijah and Elisha. Around Jesus and the apostles. And you're done. That's actually it. I mean, miracles were intended not to be, not to become part and parcel with the Christian life. They were intended to sort of to communicate a particular reality, a particular need, a particular moment in redemptive history. And that's exactly what's going on in this passage. 
Jesus in performing this miracle is manifesting his authority over creation. Remember, the first 18 verses told us Jesus actually created creation. That when the beginning began to begin, Jesus was already there and has authority over his creation. So naturally, he can turn water into wine should he so desire. But the purpose was temporary. The purpose was to communicate the beginning of something new. Miracles really were never intended to be long-term, regular events in the life of the church. It marks this new beginning. It marks a new era. It marks a new place in redemptive history. This Jesus providing wine at this wedding. What does it mark? If that's the case, then what's the function? What's the the point? If this miracle is supposed to mark a new beginning, right? A new era, a new place in redemptive history. What does that look like? Well, the third um, relationship is the wine and us. First of all, this, this isn't a passage about alcohol consumption. This, is, this really isn't the first place to go to try to make an argument that you as a Christian are allowed to drink wine. This is not the place to start. That's not the, the aim. Um, it's fascinating to me how big a deal alcohol consumption is in the southeast of the U.S. And the further away you get from that, the less it becomes uh, a thing. Um, if the Bible wanted to condemn, I will say this, if the Bible wanted to condemn all consumption of wine, there are words for grape juice and for fruit of the vine available to the writer that he could have used and he didn't use it. Besides, Mr. Welch didn't create his grape juice until 1869. Besides, did you notice our Old Testament reading? A feast with great meat. And great fine wine. That's the feast that Jesus will inaugurate. Or Psalm 104. If drinking wine was a sin, the psalmist wouldn't write that God causes the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Grape juice doesn't gladden the heart of man. Now, to be fair, their wine was watered down so that the alcohol volume was about half of what you'd find in wine today. It was watered down. And so there is that. And I will grant all of that. And clearly the Bible condemns drunkenness. None of that is actually the point here. That's outside the scope, the the aim, the purpose. And you think, well, hold on a second. It sure sounds like, verse 10, the master of the feast is celebrating this great new fine wine that has suddenly appeared. Hey, groom, you know, most people serve the best stuff first. And then when people start to get a little bit drunk, a little buzz, a little tipsy, and they can't, they can't tell the difference, that's when you bring out the cheap stuff. You did the reverse. It sounds like he's praising the groom for this great wine. 
What if, however, he's actually condemning him? What if he's actually saying this is a waste? Because the people here at this wedding have been drinking long enough now that they don't know the difference. They can't tell that this is the good wine. You've wasted the money. Uh, you've, you're wasting your time bringing out the good stuff because it's all lost on these people. Isn't that Jesus? Isn't that exactly what we just read in chapter 1 about Jesus himself, right? That he would come to his own and his own wouldn't receive him. He would come to his people and they wouldn't be able to recognize him. They wouldn't want to recognize him. Jesus is, in many ways, the wine itself here. He's the one that gladdens the heart. He's the one who brings joy in life. He's the one who's suddenly appeared after all these years to a group of people who won't be able to tell. Who won't recognize him. The reality is, this passage is about Jesus replacing the stone jars. Those stone jars used for ceremonial cleansing, this ceremonial washing, and instead Jesus replaces it with washing in the blood of the Lamb of God. No more mere external religion, internal religion as evidenced by this wine consumption, this gathering around the feast and, and drinking in the wine of this celebration of this wedding. And so what this, what this wine at a wedding marks, what this miracle marks out is the beginning of a new covenant. The old is passing away. Why? Well, because verse 11. This is the first of seven signs in the Gospel of John. This is a sign, verse 11, the first sign that he did at Cana in Galilee. What does what is changing water into wine a sign of? Well, let me, by way of application, let me suggest three things. First, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's activity in the world. The promised Messiah, if you'll let me use this sort of imagery, the promised Messiah has been hiding behind stone jars under the old covenant. These ceremonial jars for sort of ceremonial cleansing these rites of purification. Throughout Old Testament history, that has been the, the mark. And now those, those jars are replaced by the wine of fellowship with Christ. Salvation isn't merely external. It's internal. It isn't merely about observing rules and washing the outside, but about feasting with Christ. And drinking His wine is a picture of the cleansing that Christ offers from the inside out, not from the outside in. The second sort of function of a sign 
of this sign is to say that Jesus is the ultimate blessing of God's activity in the world. Jesus solves our shame problem. Jesus comes to solve our shame problem. And he performs this miracle at a wedding that allows a wedding feast to press on, to continue longer so that this, this wedding can go on purely for the point, for the, for the function of saving this groom from shame and guilt and embarrassment. But he didn't give enough wine to just sort of get them through the day. Right here, let me provide enough wine until you can send someone to the store to get some more. A hundred and fifty-ish gallons of wine. That's what you call above and beyond. That's filled to the brim blessing. And so there's this picture in which this miracle reminds us that Christ brings blessings beyond what we can ask or think. The Old Testament The Old Covenant anticipates a kingdom of God marked by an overabundance of wine and joy and feasting. And Jesus says, I'm bringing that kingdom. You know, Mark's gospel begins with Jesus going, hey, the kingdom of God is here. John's gospel begins with Jesus showing the kingdom of God is here. And finally, this miracle prepares us for another wedding feast. One at which Jesus will not be merely an invited guest. He's the groom. The church, the bride. How does one get included in that feast? How does one get into that? How do you I get to pull up a chair under that table? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 11, right? His disciples believed in him. All who do are invited to the table. All who believe and trust in Christ and him alone as their king, as their savior, are invited to slide their knees under the table to join at the marriage supper of the lamb. Jesus cleanses us from our guilt and shame. He pours the wine. He invites us to celebrate with him. And if you have believed in his name, to steal John's language from chapter one, mind you, then you already have your invitation to that wedding. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work in inaugurating your kingdom even here at this wedding feast. Turning water into wine, manifesting your power and authority over creation. Providing for your people super abundantly, as it were. Father, we pray that you would use us to gather more people around that table. Would you set more plates Would you put out more chairs that are still empty? And would you use us to bring people in to gather with us around that feast? In the meantime, would you 
use your word, our fellowship with other believers, the sacraments and prayer to strengthen our faith and our trust and confidence in Christ as our redeemer and grow in us a longing for the day that is yet to come. We ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior and our King. Amen.